0: Through our practice, we begin to see and to understand how the mind and the body works through our mindful awareness, through the ever-deepening qualities that come along with mindfulness. We learn how to bring a tender, compassionate energy to support the unfurling, the unfolding of our hearts so that we can unfold where we're folded in upon ourselves. And through that process of bringing some tender awareness to what's going on, we learn in some many different ways how to work with what's going on with some balance. And then within that balance, we're able to see more clearly we're able to correct the distortions. This enables us to see in a more easy way, in a very clear way, what is unwholesome, what leads to suffering, and it helps us to see what we can relinquish. It helps us to realize what is wholesome within ourselves to cultivate that which is wholesome also, and to use that wholesomeness in the world. We begin to purify our hearts and our minds. We begin to purify the roots of suffering within ourselves, so that no matter what happens in the world, no matter what happens outside of ourselves, in this ever-fluxing world, of joy and sorrow, inside is really peaceful, is calm. Inside can be like a still forest pool. So no matter what it looks like from the outside, no matter what stones are thrown onto the pool, inside we really know ourselves, inside we really can rely on ourselves. So no matter what ripples the pond of our hearts, of our minds, it can always return to some kind of stillness, to some kind of clear seeing. Tonight I'd like to talk about liberating awareness, that quality that we're all developing that helps us to see more clearly, so much so that it brings us to uh, inner liberation, an inner freedom, and also how our practice produces varying refinements of happiness and peace as we go along, not from acquiring anything or from attaining anything, but from the purity of heart that is uncovered, that is unfurled, that is revealed, that is realized as we practice by letting go, by relinquishing, by non-clinging. So the process of mindful awareness has immediate and far-reaching benefits. Sometimes we may not aim so far in our aspirations. We may come to practice out of a very deep feeling of separation within ourselves. We may come to practice because we want to understand how to truly be happy, a kind of reliable happiness. We may not even be see that far. We may just want to uh, overcome suffering. And that's as far as we can get. When I first started practicing, there was a lot of dukkha in my life, a lot of suffering just as there is in anybody's life. And I was searching for some kind of reliable happiness. And I wasn't even thinking that it would be so far-reaching or uh, so profound. I was just needing and wanting some peace of mind day-to-day in this conditional realm. And from the beginning, I'm so grateful to all of my teachers because they always made it clear to me that I didn't have to aim for just that. That the aim of the practice was much more far-reaching than that. That there was a possibility to realize an unconditional peace and happiness, a happiness that is unshakable. A sure heart's release. And so I was really um, inspired by the words of the Buddha when I read during the course of my practice many years ago from the middle length discourses the Majimanikaya this is the discourse on the simile of the heartwood this holy life says the Buddha, does not have gain, honor, or renown for its benefit, the attainment of virtue for its benefit, the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit, but it is the unshakable deliverance of mind. That is the goal of the holy life, the sure heart's release its heartwood, and its end. And so the horizons of my spiritual life were widened from the very beginning. How do we live this holy life going towards that goal? It is said that um, in the teachings of the Buddha there are three areas of life that we can pay particular attention to in order to aim towards that goal so that we stay on the path. Three practices that we can practice within that will support this profound trajectory, this liberation, this sure heart's release. And these places of practice are called the three pillars of the Dhamma. And so this is the area that I'd like to speak about tonight. These three pillars all require mindful awareness, all require the practice of mindful awareness. So the three pillars are the first one being dana, or generosity. The second one being sila, or the mindful practice of living in harmony with others. Refraining from non-harming. And this we do through the practice of the precepts. And the third one is called bhavana. Bhavana means the development of the mind. This third category is is divided, actually. There are two subcategories in this. And the first one is concentration. This is one development of the mind. And the other development is a development of wisdom. The development of concentration is through the samatha practices. And the development of wisdom is through the vipassana practice. There is a story of the Buddha while he was walking in the forest one day with a group of his monks. And he bent down. And he scooped up a handful of leaves. And he came back up and he asked his monks, Which is more, O monks, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in all the forests? And of course, the monks, being all fully enlightened beings, could easily answer that. Uh, (laughs) They said, uh, The leaves in all the forests are more, of course. And the Buddha replied, The knowledge of the fully awakened one is like all the leaves in all the forests. What I teach is like leaves in my hand. That is all that is needed for freedom, for liberation. And so what the Buddha taught, you might say, rests on the foundation of these three pillars, sila, dana, sila, and bhavana generosity, morality, and the development of the mind. All these practices are practices. So that implies that it takes effort, that it takes patience, that it takes a lot of compassion for ourselves and others. And so these three pillars of the Dhamma are the template that I'll be speaking from this evening not speaking so much on the first two pillars, but just kind of outlining that part of the template, and speaking more on the third one, which is bhavana. Now most of the time I have a lot of stories to tell, and this is a talk which I don't have a lot of stories because it has a lot of uh, information which I hope that you will just align with your own practice. And that's the way that you can stay awake in this talk. <laughs> um, if you align it with your own understanding, your present understanding, and let it open your mind, sometimes when you don't, when you see something where you've hit an edge about in your own practice or your understanding, it really helps. I like the way that Tibetans give their Dharma talks a lot. They always give a little talk in the beginning about paying attention, staying awake, paying respect, because this is the Dhamma. And the Dhamma is so precious to listen to. Listening to the Dhamma is one of the most precious things we can do. It's one of the best good karmas we can make, listening to the Dhamma. So I hope I've inspired you to stay awake. <laughs> so Miocin spoke very beautifully about Donna generosity on the evening of Thanksgiving, and she filled that out quite a bit. But I just want to recap and um, give you uh, a, a fuller understanding, at least in my talk, so you, have a, you can see the whole picture. Donna, generosity is about sharing our lives with others. It's about giving, of course. It's about letting go. It gives us the practice of opening our hearts to others. And when we do that, we connect with others. And when we connect with others, we can feel ourselves in this great tapestry of life not alone, not separate, open-hearted. It takes a lot of uh, metta karuna and a lot of equanimity to practice generosity. In every act of generosity, there is all of the four brahmaviharas. There is uh, kindness, metta, because you have to have an open heart in order to give. There's compassion because we care about when the other is suffering. There's equanimity because we have to part from whatever we're giving. There has to be some equanimity. And there's sympathetic joy because we can be happy for their happiness. So there's so many beautiful qualities in one act of generosity. Not only does it help others, it helps ourselves because all of those beautiful qualities are being developed. That open-hearted, loving connection produces a very deep sense of well-being in our hearts, a way we can feel that intrinsic, intrinsic goodness about ourselves. And so we live our lives from this great sense of goodness, about ourselves. We're not so plagued by feelings of unworthiness, feelings of resentment, disconnectedness, feeling separate from life. This is a great boon to us as human beings. This is the wisdom of generosity. It's not just because it helps others, but we see in a fuller sense that it helps ourselves as well it gives us a kind of faith, a kind of confidence in ourselves, the courage to keep on going no matter what's happening. So we see the great value of generosity, the great wisdom of generosity, because it becomes a a circle. We give to others and what we feel coming back to us is not only gratitude, but a feeling of goodness within ourselves. It inspires that kind of richness in life, as opposed to a kind of poverty feeling in our hearts. So generosity, the first pillar of the Dhamma, in the time of the Buddha and in many of the Asian countries, it is the first teaching to be given. It's a very important teaching I think we don't give enough attention to here in the West. Generosity also helps us practice letting go because there is that moment of relinquishment that comes, that non-clinging that needs to be developed, not just on the material level But the non-clinging of our views and opinions, our need to be right, our unhealthy habit patterns, there's so much in the non-material world that we learn to let go of. Greed, hatred, and delusion, in all its various forms, we let go of. So the cultivation of non-clinging, letting go, to the nth degree, which can lead to the highest happiness, to the letting go into Nibbana, into the unconditioned. So this is generosity, the first pillar of the Dhamma. And the second pillar is sila, sometimes spoken of as morality, living with the aspiration of non-harming towards one another, living in harmony. It's really understanding how to bring loving kindness and compassion into every aspect of life, into our relationship with all beings, not just human beings, but all beings, having that profound understanding that all beings want to be happy. All beings want to be happy. I learned this once um, very deeply for i think for the very first time when manindra was helping uh, us helping me in the kitchen and a cockroach came running along the the um, counter there and so during those days my first instinct was to you know just kill the cockroach just <sighs> and manindra just put up his hands and he said oh no he said don't do that and he looked at me and he said All beings want to be happy. Even cockroaches. (laughs) Uh, You know, just that, that action and that kind of protection and that depth, that profound understanding that he had always stays with me. So it's that kind of respect for all beings, a very deep understanding that that's where all beings are coming from. This understanding and the carrying out of this understanding in the world not just not, doesn't make just for harmony within our world in relationship to others, but it makes for a profound harmony within ourselves. Because then we live with no regret or with less regret. We have the potential to live with to not live with the agonizing feeling of guilt. We harm the world with greed, hatred, and delusion, but we harm ourselves first with it. And a lot of times we don't realize that. And so when there is this awareness, when we have that deep realization of that, that that's what sila is all about, it's not just about non-harming in the world, but it's about non-harming in our own hearts. There's that wisdom that comes that helps us through life in, in a way where we can't be fooled by anything that comes up in our hearts. Like the Dalai Lama says, when he was asked about afflictive emotions, he said he had plenty of them, but he wasn't fooled by them. So we learn that when they come up, we don't have to carry them out. Like Manindra would say, when the heart is pure, when anything of greed, hatred comes up, we see it clearly. And we can say, you know, aversion is there, but I'm not aversion. We're not so carried away by it. We're not fooled by it. We can refrain. So in this way, our inner inner, world can relax. There can be a deep rest, not just with the happiness that comes with giving, not just with a sense of goodness about ourselves that comes with giving, but about that deep understanding of non-harming that comes from sila. We don't feel tightened up with regret, with remorse, with guilt. The inner heart can relax. And it makes it much easier to practice then when we have these kind of inner conditions. So though these practices in and of themselves bring great happiness, they are the beginning of the foundation of our practice of bhavana, the third pillar of the Dhamma, the development of wisdom through the development of the mind. Practicing dana and sila are great practices, and each one of them helps us to give birth to a greater potential for happiness. It's as though we've lived in a cocoon of our previous understanding, and through the practice of dana and sila, we begin to break out of that cocoon and we begin to see a potential for greater happiness. So the horizons of our spiritual life are farther. They're farther reaching. So generally, bhavana means mental development. But more precisely, in the text, it's described as To bring forth what is not yet developed. Bhavana means to bring forth what is not yet developed. In the West, we tend to think of mental development as something we acquire, some kind of knowledge, some kind of learning that we use to bring into the world, to share with the world, or that we use to understand the world or the universe more. But from a perspective of the Buddhist teachings, mental development means something different. It has nothing to do with acquiring knowledge. It has to do with strengthening those capabilities of the mind and the heart, which lead to and actually liberate us from greed, hatred, and delusion, from ignorance. So here's where you know, you begin to see how many lists there are. Now bhavana is split into two categories. And the first of the categories of bhavana is uh, concentration. And the second one is the practice of vipassana. When I first understood the difference between these two and how each of them worked, it really illuminated my path. It was like shining a very bright light on the path that I was walking on and seeing that actually my practice could go in different ways. And it really helped me to understand how the two worked. And so every time I've presented this understanding, it's helped a few people on the path. So. I wanted to share this with you. It's kind of simplistic because that's the way my mind works. And so maybe it'll be easy to take in. So the first, the samatha, in and of itself, leads to calmness, to tranquility. That's where it leads and that's where it stops. The samatha or the concentration practice in and of itself. The other practice of panya, the practice of wisdom that we do with the vipassana practice leads to liberating insight, transformative wisdom. It leads to the unconditioned. It leads to nibbana. So when I saw that's how the different paths were laid out, I knew for sure where I wanted to go and it's interesting you know when i a couple of times when i was doing metta practice and with upandita he would always ask me over and over again every time i reported to him though metta is profound and it's deep and it's uh, blissful and it it's a great calm and it's very precious and beautiful what is better where do, where would you like to bring your practice because i had practiced vipassana also is the peace of vipassana better or is the peace of metta better and over and over again it was very clear to me how the peace that comes with vipassana in the end is much better So samatha, concentration practices, are all the Brahma-Vihara practices, metta, equanimity, sympathetic joy, compassion. They're the practices that have to do with hearing a sound over and over and over again exclusively. Visualization practices. These are all samatha, or concentration practices. In a concentration practice, All the energy is directed repeatedly, over and over again, focused on a particular object. Whether it be a phrase, a sound, or a form, our energy is repeatedly sent there. Whenever our attention falls off that phrase or that form or that sound, we immediately bring it back. This is what happens in concentration practice. If it goes off to something else, like a thought, that thought is ignored, and the attention is brought immediately back to the object that we're using in that practice. And so in time, the momentum of all of that uh, energy is so strong, that field of attention is so energized that nothing can come into it. It creates an incredible force field. So nothing at all can come in. It's only the directing of that energy over and over again to that particular object. The mind becomes so fixated on that vision or that sound. It happens because the mind is so streamlined. It's absorbed. It gets absorbed there. And it happens through continuity and repetition. This is how concentration practice works. In this absorption, one feels utterly, extraordinarily calm and tranquil, secluded from the hindrances. So because this force field is so strong, the hindrances cannot come in. It's said that the hindrances are at bay. The ordinary things of the world seem very far away during this time. It's a very desirable, seductive, and enjoyable state of mind when we experience this. The Buddha talked about it in a very highly respected way. It's a very exalted, refined mental seclusion. So it happens in a very lawful, quite a scientific way, that this happens. How is the mind secluded from the hindrances during this time? So this is how it works in a concentration practice, when our attention is sent over and over again to a single object. So the connecting with that object is very, very strong, and it's very, very clear the Witaka, the connecting to that object, the energy repeatedly sent to, directed to, a single experience, so that whenever it falls off, it comes back again. When this happens, of course, the energy of the mind comes up. And when the energy of the mind is uh, uplifted, when there's more energy, it overcomes sloth and torpor. So this is the first hindrance that is overcome through this, what is called a jhanic factor in in the practice. So the jhanic factor of connecting, or vitaka, is cultivated during this time. And then with the sustaining of our energy on the object, the vichara, the focus of attention is so strong, nothing else can come in, and we feel quite absorbed. There's a feeling of absorption in the object. So, of course, there's a very clear perception of what's going on, and uh, confidence arises. There's a great kind of relaxation into that object. And what happens then is that doubt is overcome. So this is the second hindrance that is kept at bay because of this kind of practice. And so because uh, the hindrances are now at bay because of these two great hindrances, sloth and torpor and doubt, joy arises naturally in the mind. And when joy arises in the mind, aversion is overcome. So this hindrance is now at bay, aversion. When there is no aversion, then the body and mind feel comfortable. And when the body and mind feel comfortable, there is no restlessness. So then that hindrance is overcome, restlessness when the body and mind no longer feel restless, when there is no sloth and torpor, when there is no doubt, the mind feels very settled, very content. And so it's not needing to go anywhere. And so the fifth hindrance of desire is overcome. There's a feeling of great harmony, of lightness in the body and the mind. And so this absorption is in the object, creates a sense of safety, creates a sense of protection. This protection, this kind of feeling of protection from all the hindrances, lasts as long as one continues to do the practice. But as soon as we drop the object, as soon as we're no longer in the momentum of that practice and that degree of focus has been given up, all the hindrances return. (laughs) That's the bad news. And we, not only that, but we establish our habitual relationship to them. You know, aversion to aversion. And uh, there's not a kind of wise development of understanding with them. Concentration, calm, tranquility are important factors in our practice, but in and of themselves they really don't lead to the deepest kind of happiness and wisdom. Practicing the Brahmaviharas to develop concentration, calm, tranquility to develop an open heart is profoundly supportive, but in and of itself it does not lead to uh, liberating wisdom. So these practices of concentration are supportive, but they're not the primary aim of our practice. By itself, it gives a temporary freedom, but not a lasting freedom. It's just the freedom from the hindrances momentarily. So that's the first part of bhavana, the mental development. The second is the development of wisdom, which comes through our practice of vipassana. Vipassana means seeing or experiencing things as they really are. So in this practice, to see things, to experience things as they really are, we have to open to everything. We can't exclude everything. We have to open to even the hindrances, open our attention to everything that we can experience as a human being, all of experience. And we're very mindful to see that mindfulness usually takes the predominant object. We don't have to make it go there. It usually takes the object that's predominant. So eventually it opens to everything, all of the five sense doors and the mind door. Everything that arises in the field of attention, but this is moment to moment. Not uh, it doesn't take one object and stay with it. It takes any object, all objects that are arising. Even in the practice of vipassana, the jhanic factors that I spoke about earlier are being developed. They're operating. So we see that on a moment-to-moment basis, the connecting and sustaining can take place. The experience of Vipassana is not one of great calm and delight, as we all know. (laughs) We're not absorbed in any one moment for any great length of time, and so we don't feel that joy and delight for a long time because the object of our attention is always changing different objects over and over again. So the subjective experience of vipassana can be one of chaos, the very opposite of tranquility and calm. And during this time when we feel like all of the objects are dissolving, going away, we can't hold on to anything, which is actually a very deep insight, Uh, we feel subjectively very chaotic inside, and we may begin to evaluate our own practice that we're not doing very well. But actually, this is a very good place in practice. We may go to our teacher and say, my practice has fallen apart. And we think that we're not doing so well, but actually, we're in a good place in practice. And that's why it's so important To have someone on the path who has been there, to have um, a spiritual friend, a teacher, who knows that this is the way. It's still the way. You haven't taken a wrong turn. It's also important at any time in practice not to judge our practice. Judging and uh, evaluating our own practice, whether we evaluate it as good or bad, is just another hindrance to us. I remember going to Upandita one time and kind of departing from the usual way of reporting to him and saying something to him that in effect was evaluating my practice. And he stopped me in, in the middle of it, just saying, stop. Just That came through the interpreter just like that. Stop. And then, then he said a few more words, and the interpreter said, if you would continue in this way, you will go backwards. That was his exact words. And that's evaluating our practice. So this time in practice, mindfulness is really revealing the insight into Anicca, and also into Dukkha. You know, that there's nothing to hold on to, that everything is really uh, dissolving. It's a very deep realization, actually, that we have to live with over and over and over again. It's like we have to live it through many, many times before we deepen into it there is the realization that uh, we see that there is an object that is arising and there there is the knowing of it. So we begin to see more keenly into what's going on. It's not just experiencing or re-experiencing uh, moments of our lives. It's seeing very clearly how the mind and the body work. There is the object and there is a knowing of it. This is one of the uh, kind of signposts along the way. We begin to see the conditionality of all of life. This is another signpost along the way on the progress of insight. Everything arises due to conditions. We may come to say, for a moment... I didn't see where there was a me. It was just this moment of aversion and the knowing of it and then a sound and then hearing, the hearing of it and then a smell and the smelling of it and then a thought, thinking about it and then noticing thinking and it went on and on that way and then all of a sudden I realized where in all this is a me? We see that nothing really exists in and of itself. There's no core to anything, anywhere. This may be just a moment of realization. And sometimes it's a fearful moment, sometimes it's a relieving moment, depending on our conditioning. And we have to, in our practice, relive this over and over and over again, re-experience this over and over and over again. It's not through psychological understanding. It's not through reliving our life. This is not a Dhamma insight. It's much more profound profound than that. This comes from Matthew Ricard. Identifying our past problems is not enough. Reliving events from the distant past is only a limited remedy which can help overcome some blockages but does not eliminate their primary cause. Constantly stirring the mind at the bottom of a pond with a stick does not purify the water. The real understanding that we come to, the Dhamma understanding, the Dhamma insights that we come to, come in three different forms, three different characters. It's the insight into anicca. And this is something that we um, talk about over and over again, that our teachers talk about over and over again from many different sides. Because each time we hear it, we may align it with experiences that we now have, or from a more open place of our hearts, from a more unveiled place. This anicca happens when we see that we cannot stay on anything even for a moment. Sometimes it's um, the realization that um, everything's going away very quickly and the noting becomes very, very quick. This is one of the ways that we open to anicca. We see the unsolid nature of everything also through anicca the transient, dissolving, changing, ever-fluxing. And it doesn't matter if it's pleasant or unpleasant. The mind doesn't cling to anything during this time. It's just kind of open. We let go of a lot during this time, let go of the notion of permanence in anything, even of a sense of self. There was an experience um, with Upandita that I had of a very great calm after the attention on something dissolving very, very quickly, and kind of seeing everything as a cloud, seeing everything as so cloud-like, you couldn't touch it. It the the heat of mindfulness would just kind of burn it up. And um, this one time, it was very relieving to see it in this way and to see in a very deep way how that kind of uh, wove into an understanding of anatta, how even this mind and body that was called Kamala is just dissolving all the time, moment to moment. And that was a time when it felt like the burden of self was up, kind of lifted off the shoulders of life. And then there was a time that this happened when it was very scary in the beginning of practice. And I ran to Manindra and said that Everything's falling apart. I can't keep anything together. So it can be very fearful. It can be very relieving. Either way is a very profound insight, liberating insight. The second insight is the insight into dukkha, into suffering the intrinsic suffering nature of everything in this conditioned relative world. Nothing lasts. We see this through Anicca. Nothing at all lasts. And because nothing lasts, there is nothing, no thing, no person, no condition, no experience, no moment that can provide any happiness that's enduring, that's lasting, that's permanent. Even the experience of craving we see deeply. That also is coming and going. And so we become very weary of experience during this time. Weariness sometimes is a good sign. The weariness leads to dispassion. Everything is uh, coming together and falling apart, moment to moment. Where is there any solid ground that we can stand on? This can be quite scary, but the insight can be very liberating we begin to align ourselves with a deeper truth, with how things really are. And the spell that we were under gets broken. And at first when the spell gets broken, it feels very insecure. We feel very insecure. And so sometimes this uh, insight into dukkha is the insight into the insecurity of life. But we learn to live with that. We learn to deepen into that in a way that is... um, This is how it is. This is how it is in life. And we stop fighting it. And so when we stop resisting it, the suffering goes away. The third insight is the insight into anatta, the insight into the corelessness of self. Sometimes this is the insight into the contingent nature of everything, even what we call a sense of self. We see that there are moments, just as I described before, when it's just this happening and then this. There's a moment of aversion and then the knowing of it. There's a moment of peace and the knowing of it. There's a moment of hearing. There's a moment of tasting. There's a moment of deep insight. The Buddha says, there is a path, but no one who walks it. And he goes on and then he says, there is liberation, but no one who is liberated. And so we see that it's all empty, really. And that can be quite scary. But open to something greater, an understanding that may be from a different angle, but quite strengthening. Everything is contingent upon everything else. This understanding gives us the feeling of living in this great web of interconnectedness, where this sense of self is not separate from anything else. So we let go of the idea of some kind of solid, enduring, permanent core that we call self. And we live with a greater understanding, a truer understanding of life. This is about the conditionality of life including uh, oneself, from Trungpa Rinpoche. The experience of oneself relating to other things is actually a momentary discrimination, a fleeting thought. If we generate these fleeting thoughts fast enough, we create the illusion of continuity and solidity. Like watching a movie, the individual film frames are played so quickly They generate the illusion of continued movement. So we build up an idea, a preconception, that self and other are solid and continuous. And once we have this idea, we manipulate our thoughts to confirm it, and we are afraid of contrary evidence. It is the fear of exposing this, or the denial of impermanence, that imprisons us. It is only by acknowledging impermanence that there is a possibility of appreciating life as a creative process. And so we understand about anatta, this uh, selflessness in a different way through our practice, not conceptually, but experientially. We bring attention to the body, and we see its fleeting nature, dissolving nature moment to moment. We bring attention to feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, and we see that too has no solid permanent core. We bring attention to mind states in the body, joy and anger, that too is fleeting not solid, no core there, nothing permanent there. We bring it even to intention, and we see that that too is impermanent. It's not solid. There's no core there. When we're not overlapping a sense of self on anything, you know, we may have these experiences over and over again, and then we have the thought, In retrospect, oh, that was me thinking that. Or there's an I or a me or a mine here somewhere. We have that thought, but it's just a thought. And then back to -to moment-to-moment mindfulness. So when we're not thinking about it, when we're just doing the practice, that understanding deepens. It's why every time when There is um, a report in the interviews and it's mainly thinking about what's going on. You know, there are like we have to think of a million different ways to interrupt you. So (laughs) just stop thinking and just stay with the moment-to-moment experience or know that thinking is happening, not get lost in the content, How no matter how seductive it can be. Go back to just knowing this is a moment of thinking, this is a moment of resistance, then a moment of okayness, and just staying with the practice. Carlos Castaneda says, when the internal dialogue stops, the extraordinary facets of ourselves surface as though they had been kept hiding, guarded by our words. it's in the development of these insights that our path deepens, that the trajectory towards transformative wisdom and towards the unconditioned is happening. It basically, basically goes from reacting to everything that happens on the gross and even subtle levels to non-reaction, to deeper states of equanimity, to put it in, in very simple words. There's a, what is called equanimity towards all formations, sankara upekka, a kind of what they call perfect equanimity, So that no matter what's happening, whether it's gross or subtle, even equanimity towards the deepening understanding of Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, that deepening is not conceptual. It's not intellectual. It's not with words. It's through experience. It's completely experiential. Through that deepening, there's a disenchantment with all the forms that arise in our experience through all the sense stores and through the mind. This disenchantment, this non clinging, this natural relinquishment comes. I used to report to Upandita and uh, to Manindra, and there were these different ways that they tell me let go let go, let go, let go, let go, let go. Non-clinging. The Buddha said to a group of monks, and this is from the um, Samyutta Nikaya, Bhikkhu's form is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, perception is impermanent, volitional formations are impermanent, consciousness is impermanent, What is impermanent is suffering. What is suffering is non-self. What is non-self should be seen as it really is, with correct wisdom. In this way, this is not mine. This is not I. This is not myself. When one sees this thus, as it really is, with correct wisdom, one holds no more views concerning the past. When one holds no more views concerning the past, One holds no more views concerning the future. One one has no more obstinate grasping. When one has no more obstinate grasping, the mind becomes dispassionate towards form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness, and is liberated by the taints from the taints by non clinging. By being liberated it is steady, by being steady. It is content. By being content, it is not agitated. Being unagitated, one personally attains Nibbāna." So this is how it goes. There's nothing at all to be clung to. Through the continuity of that moment-to-moment mindfulness, the mind stream is purified. All forms arise and pass away. There is nothing to cling to that is known profoundly. There is no more adding to anything in that stream. There is nothing added. There is a one of the Beatitudes, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And God, what is that? Maybe it's the unconditioned. It's not a person. It's not a place. So the momentum of that continuity becomes so powerful and the direction towards greater purity becomes so well-directed that what happens is the mind leaps into the unconditioned. It has no other choice. That is the clear direction of the energy of the practice. And so what is this unconditioned Nibbana? It cannot be described, it is said, because there is nothing to describe. Can it be enjoyed during that time? Not really. There is a cute saying I just overheard on a uh, manindra say uh, he said this to me but i'd forgotten he said there's no pizza in Nibbana <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing to cling to <laughs> there's actually cessation of all experience now this this is one way of looking at it of experiencing it their cessation of all experience. Not only are all formations uh, ceased, but even the awareness of them. So it's a peace beyond understanding. It's not an intellectual understanding. This is from the Udana. There is, monks, an unborn, unbecome, unmade uncompounded, if there were not this unborn, unmade, uncompounded, then there would be no deliverance here, visible, from that which is born, made, compounded. But since there is this unborn, unbecome, unmade, uncompounded, a deliverance is possible from that which is born, become, made, compounded. So there is this deliverance, this sure heart's release that the Buddha talked about. I like to read the Buddha's words about this and have it come directly to us from that source. And this is from the Kaya again. Bhikkhus, I will teach you the destination and the path to the destination. Listen to that. I will teach you the taintless and the path listening to the taintless. Listen to that. Bhikkhus, I will teach you the truth and the path leading to the truth. I will teach you the far shore, the subtle, the very difficult to see, the unaging, the stable, the undisintegrating, the unmanifest, the unproliferated, the peaceful, the deathless, the sublime, the auspicious, the secure, the destruction of craving, the wonderful, the amazing, the unailing, the unailing state, Nibbana, the unafflicted, dispassion, purity, freedom, the unadhesive, the island, the shelter, the refuge. Meditate, bhikkhus. Do not be negligent, lest you regret it later. This is my instruction to you. So let's sit for a moment. This holy life does not have gain, honor, or renown for its benefit, but it is the unshakable deliverance of heart and mind. That is the goal of the holy life, the sure heart's release, its heartwood and its end. for listening to the Buddha Dhamma